the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. The government has constantly preyed on the public's fears to keep them dependent and under control. We saw a devastating example of this during COVID, the so-called pandemic. And although it was slower in coming, the climate change scare has also created a fearful and obedient public. By invoking irrational fears, the government and media have been able to introduce all-encompassing policies that will drastically change our standard of living for the worse. For instance, replacing conventional energy sources with wind and solar will leave us with unreliable intermittent power and capturing carbon dioxide will be extremely expensive that will have negligible impact on the climate. It's important that scientific experts speak out against these travesties and tell us that science does not support the idea that human emissions are causing a climate crisis. Yet it's becoming more and more difficult to speak the truth, and numerous scientists have lost their positions due to sharing their scientific findings. Our guest today is Dr. Matthew Wileke, an earth scientist with important insights into the climate change debate. His work led him to experience intolerance from the academic community. Dr. Matthew Wileke is an expert in earth sciences with a PhD from UCLA. He's a climate realist who regularly publishes the real science of climate change on his blog, which is named Irrational Fear, a good name, Irrational Fear. We'll link to this blog in the show description when it goes to podcast on Monday. During his time as an assistant professor at the University of Alabama, his research interests have expanded into climate change and the implications of warming on severe weather, humanity, and energy transition. So welcome to the show, Matthew. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You might know Tim Patterson. He did a PhD in earth sciences at UCLA. I've heard that name. Yes, I think that was, I, I believe that was maybe a little bit before me. Yeah, for sure. He must be close to 65. He's now the chair of Earth Sciences at Carleton University. That's right. And he, That's right. He, he actually was the one who specifically showed me that, okay, climate changes all the time, you know, and so the sun is likely an important driver of climate change. So Tim was uh, one of my original mentors, actually. Yeah, I think you'll see that uh, uh, there's a large Earth Science community that puts this in much bigger perspective than maybe since 1850. And yeah. when you look at warming, and it, it really depends on the timescales. If you're talking about temperature changes, um, it's really timescale specific. And, and you can make it look like it's warming. You can make it look like it's cooling. You can show that it's oscillated back and forth, depending on the time scale you pick. And since Earth scientists tend to think in really kind of long-term scales, I think they tend to be a little bit more on the realist or skeptical side of the debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because media seem to rarely interview Earth scientists. And I guess if they did, they'd probably get a totally different perspective. (laughs) Well, they are. They just don't know it. So, you know, Dr. Michael Mann is an Earth scientist. He has geology degree. So there was no climate science really for the majority of the time. I'm not really sure there is today. Um, You know, I think there's atmospheric physicists and then there's earth scientists. And so, mm-hmm. you know, climate scientists are basically earth scientists. And that's kind of what, what we called them for a very long time. 
And then, you know, this has been a kind of a new phenomenon in the, since, the, you know, the, maybe the 90s that this has become its own kind of niche. But essentially, they're doing the same techniques that our scientists have been doing for decades before climate science ever existed. Yeah. Well, the thing that really made me question my beliefs in the climate scare was when I looked at the half billion year record of CO2 and temperature. And what it showed was that the coldest period in the last half billion years was around 440 million years ago. And CO2 was more than 10 times higher. And I started thinking, oh, that doesn't seem to be right. Um, are you sure? And then, you know, the geologist showed me that, yeah, it's, it's all over the map. Yeah. So I wouldn't, I don't know if we know for sure that it's the coldest. So what you're talking about is called the Ordovician Silurian Glaciation. And it's really a fascinating one. It's one that I like to highlight as well. And it's, it, it's, it just, I think it shows that CO2 can have an influence. And I think it probably does on climate, but it's clear that it's relatively insensitive. If we can have glaciations when CO2 is in the thousands parts per million, then its effects, and we've known this, right? This is, it's logarithmic, its effects are logarithmic. And so they decline as you keep adding CO2 to the atmosphere. And so it's clear that there's no real you know, possibility of any of these ideas of things like runaway greenhouse effects or anything like that. And I, I think it just shows that, you know, we can do all of this work to change the atmospheric CO2, but we shouldn't really have any measure, you know, real scientific expectation for any measurable change in the temperature. It's mm -hmm. just that, you know, so, so just if the public should be aware of that, you know, all of this effort and all of this transition and everything like that, in terms of what we know scientifically, we really wouldn't expect a measurable change or shouldn't mm -hmm. expect a measurable change. And then you can yeah. ask, why are we doing all this? Yeah. Just as an aside, I noticed in the background you have a telescope there. Is that a, C, a Celestron? That is. Yep. That's oh, the 4SE. That... Yep. Okay. So um, uh, we like to, you know, peak the star. So a lot of the work that I did as a as a geologist and earth scientist was on early Earth. So I looked at asteroids a lot and things like that. My wife actually worked on Apollo samples for her PhD. That's her wow. right over there from Boulder. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, so she worked on Apollo samples. Yeah. So we've always had a kind of a planetary uh, scope to what we think about. I like to think about the origin of life and things like that. And so I called myself a planetary geologist for a while. Um, so we've always been fascinated by looking at the, you know, into the sky and thinking about space and, and the solar system. And um, yeah, yeah. So these little ones are great. You know, they can't, you can't see too much detail, but you can see the rings of Saturn pretty nicely and, oh, yeah. and things like that. You could take some nice images. It's fun for yeah. the kiddos too. Yeah. Well, I have a Celestron 8, a C8. Okay. Nice. That I, yeah. That I bought in 1979 and it's old. I mean, it doesn't have any of the modern tracking devices. Yeah. But, but the optics don't fine. change. Yeah. yeah. Those, yeah. those older lenses are just as good. I mean, maybe even better. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I've looked at Jupiter, I sort of can see the red spot. Have you ever seen it with your scope? No, no. I mean, I can define the faint lines, um, yeah. but that's about it. Um, mm -hmm. No, I, I, that would be awesome. But no, I think you need, I think I need more than just the four inches of, uh, you know, of gathering light power. Although yeah. up here, up in Colorado, maybe, uh, maybe it'll be a little bit better. I haven't broken it out yet. So oh, okay. we just moved to cool. Colorado in the last few months. And so, well, well, you know, I find the moon is pretty incredible with a oh, C8. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But you, it moves out of the frame so fast. So you have yeah. to be, you've got to be following it pretty quickly, especially yeah. at that type of, you know, at a high zoom. 
Well, also in the city, uh, the moon is fine. You know, the city lights don't blare it out. Absolutely. You'd be interested. I met Jim Irwin, who was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 15. And uh, he told us all about, you know, his adventures. And, and actually, there's a funny story I should just tell you really quickly. I know this is off topic, but it's sort of interesting. Uh, Jim Irwin gave a presentation to us when I was working in the Air Force. And he said they were about at their limit of the distance they could go with the lunar rover. And they got a, 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 a radio message that a young engineer, a junior engineer in Houston, had figured out a way that they could get back to the lunar module over, um, over a different path. And they'd get back faster than they would if they went back and they just simply followed their tracks. And he said to us, he said, so you're on the moon and nobody can rescue you and you have limited oxygen and you can go back the way you came and get back in time for sure. Or you can trust a junior engineer's calculation that you could cut across country. He said, which would you do? <laughs> he said, oh, well, there was a very disappointed junior engineer in Houston. <laughs> I bet <laughs> yeah. I would have well, made the same decision. Yeah, so I, I, I had an opportunity to work on some Apollo 14 samples. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which was um, uh, uh, Schmidt. Dr. Schmidt was up. Uh, and that was one of the only geologists that ever went up. Yeah. And so uh, we've been we've got some papers that are in the works about some uh, samples from Apollo 14. So yeah. I had some in my lab at the University of Alabama. That was always a big hit with the students when they came. They could hold a piece of the moon in their hand. Oh, is that um, right? It was just Did little have- little zircon crystals. Those the little little tiny minerals. That's what we used to date. Um, the yeah. surface of the moon, but um, yeah, there are little pieces of the moon. Wow! So, did they have to hold it with a special glove in it? No, in a it's in an box? epoxy. It's in inside epoxy, so they hold mm-hmm. it in a in a plastic box, and so they it's and then the the epoxy disc is inside the box, and they can see the little tiny crystals in there. They look like little grains of sand. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Does it does it look very different to Earth samples? So we can t- we can decipher um, lunar. Uh, samples predominantly by, for example, like their temperature or formation, the moon is very dry. And when you melt rock, if you melt dry rock, it melts at a much higher temperature than wet rock. And so you just mm. add a little bit of, of H2O for weight percent or something like that. That's about the average granite, for example, and you lower the melting temperature dramatically. And so we have little oh. techniques where we can look at the, we can estimate the temperature that the rock formed and lunar yeah. rocks appear to be much hotter, but the moon looks a lot like the earth. So that's why we think it was likely a big impactor that came in and it it knocked a lot of earth material off. And then that's what coalesced into the moon because the moon looks so similar to the earth in terms of its chemistry and it's it's geochemistry. And we just don't know of any other way of that happening. It must be actually pieces of the earth that form the moon. Wow. I read somewhere that Maybe you can tell me if this is right, that the moon is so dry that if we had concrete on the moon, we would mine it for the water. I I, I suspect absolutely. Concrete's got a lot of water content, right? You soak it a lot when you're setting it up. And so, yeah, the moon is super dry. That's why we're digging. We're looking in the shadows of these permanent craters because we're hoping that it's been so cold in those areas that there might be some water ice in those areas that's spin around and sat around for, you know, who knows how long, hundreds uh-huh. of millions, maybe billions of years. There's no chance of mining, at least my understanding, there's no chance of mining any liquid out of the, out of the moon. It is absolutely super dry. Yeah. Is that why the Indians went to the South Pole? Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah. 
I mean, surely that's a place where you'd more likely get water in deep craters. Yeah, I mean, so there, it's always been a target for uh, for lunar exploration because South Pole has what's called the South Pole Aiken impact crater. Mm. It's the largest impact crater on the lunar surface. And um, we think it's going to play a key role in us understanding how the moon formed. It also allows for really deep rocks to be exposed, what we think would be deep rocks to be exposed at the surface because the impactor exposed a lot of the deep rocks. Um, and so it is a very interesting place geologically. But sure, I mean, it is going to definitely be one of the places that's going to be in these permanent shadows. If you can find some nice craters in those areas, um, you're going to be, you probably be a great candidate for some of these uh, areas that are cold enough where they think that maybe there's water ice that has been retained you know, for a really long time. And then that's a just much easier, you know, if you're planning on establishing something like a lunar base, you know, accessibility is going to be really important. And so if you can just go to somewhere and grab chunks of, of ice and bring it back and actually melt it and use that, um, you know, that would be a great way to actually get some liquid onto the surface of the moon for something like a lunar base. Yeah, for sure. I would think it'd be psychologically pretty depressing place to live, the South Pole of the Moon. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't. I mean, I think anywhere on the moon would be a pretty depressing place to live. You know, you have daytime for something, you know, 15 or some odd days, and then you're going to be in a shadow for a long time. And yeah. so um, I, that whole circadian rhythm, it's going to be tough to get adjusted to that. I don't really see any sort of lunar exploration human type lunar exploration as being really something that's going to be feasible it's going to be something fun it's going to be something that gets countries to compete and 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 you know put people back on the moon but it's probably going to be predominantly robotics now that we send up there and but you're still going to need a kind of a base these things need to repair themselves and store things and yeah you know so it'll be kind of like a mainly a robotic base maybe a few humans here and there but i can't imagine that People are going yeah. to really thrive on the on the lunar surface. You know, one question I'm sure my listening audience are just dying for me to ask you is recently we've been hearing a lot about UFOs. Do you think that any of these reports are extraterrestrial intelligence? Um, I, I, I mean, I, I want them to be. I would love it. <laughs> I would. I really do. Um, I, I just I find that the older I get the more disappointed I get in the whole UFO community, UAP community. Um, you know, it's always, there's always in these military establishments, they're always in these weird places. They can never just land in Times Square and have a million people catch it with their cell phone. You know, yeah. just don't, you know so I just get frustrated. Um, it, I, I hope so. I hope there's something to it. Um, I, I, I suspect that, what we're really seeing is that there's some really cool technological advances that we have no idea that certain governments have gotten to in terms of their flying technologies. And we just don't really understand them yet. Um, I suspect that's probably more likely what it is, but um, I, I hope it is. I, yeah. You know, yeah. In, in a geologic sense though, if you think about the universe and the amount of time that we've been around, if, you know, the, the universe is 13.7 billion years or so. Our solar system is 4.5 or so billion years old. You know, the chance that in the last, since we've had maybe modern technology for, I don't know, but yeah, you know, let's call it a, a, I don't know, half a century, five decades. What's the chance that, you know, in that time period, that's the time period that out of all the planetary systems and all the planets, that that's the time period that someone came and explored us. 
Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that's kind of goes back to what originally was talked about with Drake's equation in terms of like astrobiology. Um, so, you know, the, the, the chances are really small, but I think it's inevitable that there's life out there. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. there's just, the numbers are just too big for us mm-hmm. to be the only one. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's fun to think about, but just what are the chances that it's, we happen well, to be alive at that time period? It would be you, awesome. You remember, yeah. You remember the science fiction series, uh, the Rama series, Rendezvous with Rama, and then the three that followed by Arthur Clarke. The idea that he puts forward in the last book was sort of depressing. He said that he felt that the common ingredient among intelligent life in the universe would be loneliness because he said the chances that they overlapped at the same time was just so remote. I mean, like you say, 13.6 billion, 13.7 billion years of universe time. We've had a civilization with reasonable technology for half a century. You know, for them to be here exactly right now in this blink of an eye just sounds so improbable. It's depressing to think about, but it's probably it's it's probably more honest. Mm-hmm. But it's still fun to romanticize about, you know, other life out there. And maybe we do make contact and we share and hopefully we're friends, you know. Yeah, but, hopefully. Um, you know, so so it's fun to think about. But yeah, I mean. None of the new evidence that's come out has really swayed me from my general disappointment in the entire UFO and UAP thing. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I share that point of view with you. Uh, It's interesting that Robert Zubrin, you know, the uh, Mars society leader dr robert zubrin i had him on the show a few a few weeks ago and he felt well he actually knew that some of the high profile ufo sightings or uap as they call them now he knew from his contacts inside the military community that they were in fact advanced military projects so you're right i think that's almost certainly more likely so i guess we better get on to climate change you and i have this (laughs) common interest in space i was an aerospace engineer actually and uh yeah, I wanted to go to the go into space, but after flying in fighters for a while, I realized I was a little claustrophobic. And you don't want to be claustrophobic when you're in a Soyuz. <laughs> My father-in-law's retired Air Force, and uh, he went up a couple times because he thought he wanted to be a fighter pilot, and he learned pretty quickly. He said, "Oh, my stomach! I don't think that's is for me." Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, that's that's fun. So we'll talk more about that some other day. Anyway, sure. your your web your website is entitled Irrational Fear, which I think is so appropriate. You know, Patrick Moore, for example, uh, he he writes about this as well. So, what are some of the irrational fears that people have about climate change? Yeah. So this is this is it's totally what got me into this. So, I, I, you know, during COVID, I, I started to realize that my, my students had a very high anxiety. And obviously, I was had to do with the pandemic and things like that. But we started talking a little bit more about mental health. And I realized that part of they're probably their second thing from COVID. And so during a non pandemic would be their number one was climate change. That's what they were freaked out about. And I started to ask them and probe them about certain things. For example, I asked them, are more people you know, passing away from climate related natural disasters today, while you're alive in your generation, then let's say maybe a hundred years ago, your great grandparents generation, and they, and how confident are you in that answer? That's what I would ask. And they would tell me that today, significantly more people are passing away from climate related disasters, and they are very confident in their answer. And that's exactly the opposite. So, so as an earth scientist, you know, our goal is to teach the community and the public and especially our students about the state of the planet. And 
what we were doing is they had the exact wrong idea and they were very confident in their exact wrong idea. And so, you know, one of those irrational fears is this idea that climate change is going to somehow impact their life dramatically, you know, it, or their kids' lives dramatically. That is an absolutely irrational fear that is not supported by the data. We know that injuries and deaths are down something like 97% from climate-related disasters. Now, of course, that's not monocausal. That has to do with a whole host of factors like better medicine, early warning systems, better engineered buildings, you name it. And especially in the first world for those things. And in the developing world, you know, not so much. But uh, uh, clearly, as the population has ballooned in the last century and less people are dying, climate change is not driving up your risk of being affected in some sort of climate-related natural disaster. And they were convinced about that. They're mm -hmm. convinced. They're convinced that it's going to cost more. That that we have to do spend all this money now because the costs of dealing with climate change in the future will be astronomical. And what we should, what I can, sh what I show is that if you look at global uh, uh, costs from extreme weather, and you have to do this, you have to normalize this to GDP because obviously we're building. We humans are have a really bad habit of when nature destroys their town or their city or whatever, they join together and they rebuild bigger and better, right? Yeah. And we, we have this tendency. I understand it completely. It's human nature. I don't blame them at all. I totally understand it. But obviously that means that the, the time that this na this natural thing that has happened multiple times happens again, there's more to destroy. So we have to normalize these costs because if you just go by costs, then you can see the things are going up. But obviously that's not has nothing to do with whether or not there's more extreme weather. So when you normalize it to GDP, there is no increase in the share that governments are spending on dealing with extreme weather. So those are the two fundamental things I think that drive anxiety in young people and climate. And they're both irrational fears because they're not supported by the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because <clears throat> Tad Murty, who was an oceanographer, he's passed away recently. He said that there's been a 13 fold increase in infrastructure across the world in the past century. So for our listening audience, that would mean that while there was maybe uh, one hotel on the coast of a certain stretch of Florida, on average, it would be now 13 hotels. So obviously, when a hurricane hits, you're going to get more damage. And, and if that hotel said, was in Miami, it went up 700% in the last 30 years, oh, just in, in real estate value. Oh, wow. Wow. So so this these statistics that show massive increase in damage from extreme weather financially really are not very meaningful, are they? There's lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now could you tell us about your experience with intolerance of alternative points of view about climate change in your academic career? Because that's something that I'm starting to hear more and more is actually pretty common. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I, I, I definitely had intolerance in academia to just my general feeling that there was this rise of illiberalism in academia. So there, there was these taboo subjects that people couldn't talk about. So climate change, especially in the earth science community, climate change was a huge one. But in the general academic community, DEI, for example, was another one. And I grew up on a college campus. My father was an academic. It was always a place where the whole point was it was a a game, a playing field for ideas. And we all mm -hmm. just kind of battled our and 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 
and our, 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 our weapons were our ideas and our words and, yeah. and how we could craft those. And we would slay each other when our, in our arguments and our discussions, and we'd go have a beer afterwards because generally we thought that most of us were good people and we tended to have the same kind of general tendencies to want to, you know, have a good, free, a productive life and have health and safety and just good general well-being. And now it seems that if we have disagreements on especially a certain of subjects, for example, climate change, it's not that we can agree to disagree. It's that this person is a fundamental enemy of mine. They are they are committing violence on me by oh, disagreeing wow. with me because because i am so adamant about my my stance i'm so ideological in my stance it's become almost religious you know and so yeah. i started to speak out about some of this stuff and it was very clear um you know that i was starting to get pushed the truth is as in the earth science community i didn't get a ton of pushback because they all realize and kind of agree with a lot of the stuff that i'm saying they just weren't going to rock the boat like I was. They're not going to open oh, yeah. and say it. Um, they realize that the funding institutions that they have to get their funds from, um, you know, are 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 very ideological in their stance. And so if they make some of these claims, it's almost career suicide. I was already no I knew I was leaving. So we had made the decision that we were leaving. We decided to stay. I had a PhD student and 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 the university needed us to teach some courses. So we we were staying for a little bit longer, but our decision to leave was already pretty much made during COVID. And so then it opened me up and, you know, so I could speak about this. And it was clear that, um, you know, the moment that any sort of media picked up on this stuff, that the university came, you know, basically talked to the faculty and excommunicated, basically said, don't have any communication with the, this faculty member. It's um, you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I had already basically stopped going to the faculty meetings. I if you're an academic, the one thing you want to do is get out of faculty meetings. And so <laughs> since I was leaving, it was my last year. I, I told the chair, I said, you know, I, you guys are making long-term decisions. Do I need to be there? She said, no, no problem. So I was great. <laughs> so, yeah. so I wasn't, I wasn't there, but I was, I was made aware of this. And so, you know, it's just clear that there's certain subjects that if you talk about, it's not okay to have these disagreements. If you disagree on these certain subjects, you are somehow a bad person. You are not, you know, you're not a good human being. You're not looking out for the well-being of people. You're called a denier. Uh, oh yeah. You know, it, so it, it's just, it's, it's something that has become much more of a, you know, a dogmatic type of thing than a scientific discussion. It's much more of a dogmatic or, or ideology or religion discussion than it is about science. The science is very yeah. clear. There's absolutely no metric that supports anything that could be called a crisis, an emergency, or a breakdown. The IPCC in every one of their reports has never used that terminology ever. So, you know, there's a disconnect somewhere between the mainstream media and what these kids are getting and what the scientists are saying, but the scientists are keeping their mouth shut because all of this extra attention and everything like that just brings more funds and brings in more notoriety. And so especially the young faculty, they know they, if they rock the boat, they're going to commit career suicide. So everybody just shuts up while we essentially convince young people that their future is doomed. Yeah. Yeah. And you see people like Greta Thunberg and others who are 
really concerned about their future. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I find most of the young people are, are honest. They're not, Absolutely. you know, but they are just misled. And it's really, sad. it's really sad because the whole concept of being a skeptic now has become somehow tarnished. I mean, you might remember Dr. Tim Ball, a historical scientist. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Tim was actually our lead scientist for quite a while. And he was told numerous times, he said, oh, you're a skeptic. And his response would be, thank you. Because <laughs> he said, yeah, we're supposed to be skeptics. I mean, this whole idea that we have to walk in lockstep, I mean totally against the scientific method. Yeah, science science is definitely built on skepticism, but I totally agree with you. If I was 20 years old, I'd probably be gluing myself to a painting too. I mean, if you see people like Al Gore, who you're supposed to respect, saying the oceans are boiling, I would be like, well, wait, wait the oceans are boiling. Okay, well, boiling's hot. And I, yeah. I, I don't think I can survive. My fish can't survive if the water is boiling. Okay, I'm going to go glue myself to a painting. You know, I get it. They're, yeah. They're, yeah. You know, the propaganda machine is is powerful. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't blame them either. I blame the the who are supposed to be the responsible adults that should be telling them and honestly being a little bit more open about what we know and don't know about climate change. Um, but you know, it, it's it, it, these people are very useful because if you can, you know, this is a great way to push propaganda and to push policy if if that's what you want. And so I can under I understand the motivation for this whole propaganda machine to use young people like they do because they're a very powerful machine. But um, it's it's sad because I think the mental health crisis is probably much more detrimental than the climate crisis. Yeah. Well, after the break, I want to talk a little bit more about that. My guest today has been Dr. Matthew Wileke. He's actually an earth science expert, PhD from UCLA, which is pretty cool because I always followed UCLA basketball. <laughs> I've been following them ever since Lou Alcindor, you know, who eventually became Karim Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> but right. uh, yeah, I mean, the wonderful university to go to. So we'll be right back after the break. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. 
Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Well, the OUTLOUD truth was the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.news was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. I'm back with Dr. Matthew Wileke, an expert in earth sciences, PhD from UCLA. He runs the blog called Irrational Fear. I was reading something last night, Matthew, that you've written about how the increase in CO2 and therefore more vegetation, a greening of the earth, may actually act to moderate temperature rise. It could actually be a, a beneficial feedback, which could prevent us from having disastrous temperature rise. Yeah, so it's this is this is one of these things where the idea that the science of climate change or our understanding of climate change is settled is absurd because we're constantly learning new things and new feedback systems that we didn't imagine. So we've known that CO2 fertilization has been greening the planet. NASA has been observing this with satellites for a while. So this just means that there's more leaf matter in places because there's more CO2 and plants use CO2 to create their tissues and so we've known that there has been a greening. And there's a recent study that was just published that these leaves, they actually emit these organic compounds as gases. And these organic mm. compounds, they work really well to nucleate clouds. And so one of the biggest problems we have in modeling climate is modeling clouds. Clouds nucleate on a small scale. They're very kind of dispersant. They come and they go. Sometimes you'll look up and you'll see this little cloud, right? And you'll look up again a minute later, it's gone. And so they're very difficult for climate models that have these big grids that are on the order of a multiple kilometers to model. So that's been one of the big issues of climate modeling. And we know that clouds and water vapor is the predominant greenhouse gas. And so this new idea that well, this greening of these leaves is producing much more of these compounds that we didn't really realize were actually nucleating clouds. This could help to actually mitigate because clouds work as at nighttime, they'll actually trap heat, but in the daytime, right, they're reflecting the solar radiation that's coming in. And so they can actually mitigate how much warming there is. So there's been this long lasting hypothesis known as Gaia. This is idea that earth has this kind of self-regulation um, it's not a very fragile system. It's a system that's experienced things like polar reversals, 
super volcanoes, large asteroids whizzing in and slamming into the surface. And so it's a relatively, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a robust system. It's not a very fragile system. And so I think we're starting as we examine more and we learn more about this, um, we're really starting to see that there's just really no possible realm where we can see that our atmosphere, our, our anthropogenic emissions of CO2 could lead to some sort of runaway drastic thing. There's too many of these new feedbacks that we're learning about that would mitigate a lot of this. That doesn't mean that it won't have some sort of influence, um, but any of these sort of disastrous ideas where, you know, the planet's on fire and, and, and billions of people will have to migrate. It just doesn't appear that any of that is, is going to be is supported. Well, right. And when you look back at the geologic record, you say, well, when CO2 was 10 times higher, we didn't have a runaway greenhouse effect. It, the Earth didn't turn into Venus. So obviously, right. the system is pretty robust. That's right. Absolutely. And so and it's not that it's just been that one time we've seen it, it's it's elevated. The, the vast majority of the Phanerozoic, the last 550 million years, CO2 has been above on the order of 1,000 ppm. So mm -hmm. it's only in these last, there's only been a couple times that we've really gotten into below about 300 ppm. And so I wrote about this as well. This It's strange to me that there's an argument being made that this is the climate that we should be protecting. Because mm -hmm. this, this is a very unstable climatic regime that we're in. Only in the last million or two million years have we seen huge oscillations between glacial and interglacial periods. If you go three, four, five million years back, you start to see that the planet was significantly warmer and it was stable. The, 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 obviously, the climate did change and there was some trends, but there wasn't this big oscillation that would drive the planet into a glacial state for 100,000 years, and then a few tens of thousand years of interglacial and then back into a glacial. And we know that looking at human genetics, about 900,000 years ago, a glaciation almost caused the extinction of the human species. We were mm. down to something like 1,300 individuals and during a glaciation. So we suffer during cold periods. We thrive during warm periods. I, I you know, this idea that that a, a degree or two of warming is going to cause the collapse of human civilization is just completely unfounded. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's sad that the young people aren't hearing more of that because, I mean, it would be quite consoling, I would think, for them to be told, you know, the system is very robust. Otherwise, the earth would have gone to hell in a handbasket a long time ago. I, I, that's what I thought too. And, you know, my students were very refreshed to see that. But, geez, on Twitter, I get so much pushback. Like, yeah, you know, I, 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 and I'm, I'm showing you data that I thought would be refreshing to see. You know, if I was in my 20s and really thought that there was a good chance that I was going to be affected by a climate-related disaster, and I see that I'm not, that's that's refreshing to me. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one kind of climate-related disaster that I think we're we're actually risking is if we went ahead with geoengineering projects where we intentionally seed the upper atmosphere with particulate matter and so cool the planet, I mean, isn't there a risk that we could trip the planet into the next glacial? It's the, so, you know, solar radiation management, SRM, I've seen it called this is one of this is one of these irrational things. So if you if you have irrational fear, you make irrational decisions. Humans are not smart when they're dealing with crisis or environment. We saw this in COVID. This is this is how one reacts to something irrationally. 
there are so many unforeseen consequences that we wouldn't understand down the road you know, and we would be affecting everybody globally. The worst part about this is, is that one rogue nation decides to do this, it could affect everyone. And yeah. I, I and, and I really believe that people are getting so, you know, hysterical about climate that it could happen. And the unforeseen consequences, I argue that there are so, there's probably more damage that we do with environmental policy than we actually fix. There's so many mm-hmm. situations where doing nothing would have been better then because of the unforeseen consequences of our policies are trying to control the knobs of nature is a very dangerous thing. And mm-hmm. I don't think we should be exploring that. And I definitely don't think that the science supports any sort of reason to be exploring that. It's crazy mm-hmm. to me that governments are talking about this. And I, I think that's a much more, I'm much more worried about that than I am about two degrees of warming in 2100. Well, the analogy I use is a little like taking the back off your computer and giving a five-year-old uh, a bunch of tools, leaving the power on and asking them to fix your computer. I mean, yeah, you're probably going to end up with a dead five-year-old and a ruined computer. I mean, just as you pointed out concerning the um, the business of photosynthesis, perhaps resulting in, you know, more photosynthesis might result in more uh, cooling so that we actually have a um, a negative feedback you know, that shows that we really don't know how the climate works very well. <laughs> yeah. And we, we know, we know for sure that part of the reason we can feed, you know, 8 billion people on the planet is because yields have increased in nearly every crop that we have partly because of CO2 fertilization. Another reason is because of synthetic fertilizers, which also use fossil fuels in the Haber-Bosch process. That's essentially, you know, taking methane and turning it into ammonia. Um, and so that's half the world's population, about 4 billion people are, are, are essentially living on synthetic fertilizers. But, you know, it's clear that this has increased the amount of yield. And do they consider what this would have in terms of crop production? Population keeps increasing. If you start to block the sun, won't there be an effect on how much yield you get from agriculture? And mm-hmm. then you start to ask the question, you know, is this a bug or is this a feature? Because there's a real Malthusian aspect to a lot of this. There's a lot of people who argue that the planet just can't sustain 8 billion people. In terms of biomass, where something like 1 100th are the arthropods, you know, crabs and things like that. Um, and so, so we're very small in terms of biomass. But for some reason, 8 billion people are unsustainable on the planet. And then it begs the question, well, who gets to stay and who gets to go? Yeah. Yeah, and who decides what the population should be? I mean, yeah. Elon Elon Musk says that the problem is there's not enough people, in particular, not enough people in the working age. Absolutely, and you know, so something about uh, the way that humans evolve is we have this kind of stochastic evolution where one great mind can really have a dramatic change, and your odds of having these great thinkers go up as you increase your population. And so, unfortunately, what we're seeing though is that. The countries that suffer the most are having the most children, right? And because that's because mortality is high. So I teach a class called sustainability, or I used to teach a class called sustainability at the University of Alabama. And what we showed is that it's clear that if you want to essentially slow population growth, the best way to do that is increase wealth. Because it's the people that have the most that actually think about long-term that go, 
I'm kind of enjoying traveling all around the world in my 30s. Maybe I'm not going to have kids. And it's the folks in the poor nations that need the labor force and maybe will lose a child or two under the age of five because their mortality rate is so high and their health infrastructure is so low. And so, you know, it's clear that right now what we're doing is we're having the poor people, the people that suffer the most have the largest increase in population. And we're telling those people that because of future warming, they have to stay poor because we are not going to invest in their fossil fuel infrastructure. We're not going to invest in energy infrastructure. They have to wait until somebody comes by and puts solar panels and an induction stove into their village. So they have to stay poor because that's going to help to reduce the, the future warming. And the rich countries outsource their CO2 to poor countries. And then we pat ourselves on the back and say, look how good we're doing. We're protecting the planet. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's, it, it blows my mind. The whole argument, everything that that you hear about it, it's it's essentially backwards. Yeah. Well, it reminds me very much about of, of 1984's Newspeak, where everything they said was the opposite of reality. You know, they said, uh, you know, basically war is peace and the ministry of truth. And, I, you know, I've never seen a field, honestly, in my life. And I'm an engineer, so I'm, I'm not actually a climate scientist. But as I learn more about it, I've never seen a field where virtually every single characteristic is either wrong or completely the opposite, whether it's polar bears or sea level or extreme weather or temperature or ocean acidification. I mean, virtually every single claim that they make is either wrong or unknown. Uh, is that an ac accurate statement? Yeah, I, I mean, so I think that, I think that, so there's a few things there. I think that there are some things that are happening. I think the planet is in general warming. So definitely cities are warming, right? And that has to do with yeah. urban heat island. And things like that. So the majority of the people that live in urban areas have felt some temperature change. And I would say that the planet has generally been warming since the last glaciation. It's thank not goodness. linear. Thank goodness. <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah. so it's not linear, but you know, it's generally it's been warming. The biggest disconnect though, is this idea that this is somehow outside of natural variability and that this is going to be attached to all of these other negative impacts. So if you've noticed that the, the the, the, the whole discussion has changed dramatically. It used to be all about warming, 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 a couple degrees higher, you know, we have to watch this. And then everybody started to realize that, okay, well, I don't know, it's a, it's a degree warmer already since 1850, 1.1 or so. I don't see anything really bad. It's kind of nice, actually, yeah. in a lot of places. So yeah. quite, a, quite a few people were like, okay, this isn't so bad. So then they attached to this whole other aspect, right? That this is going to drive all this extreme weather. This is going to drive mass migration and drought and, and, and agricultural collapse and this and that. So they kind of attached this other aspect to it. And so that's where the disconnect is. I think that climate scientists get generally the temperatures right. I think thermometers are relatively simple instruments. I think we have a pretty decent way of doing it from space, although sometimes the algorithms get a little wonky and it's a little difficult. It's stupid to me to reduce the planet into a single temperature. Um, yeah. I, think, I think it's meaningless, so I don't really know what that means. Um, for example, we say that the, the planet now is warmer than it was in the Holocene thermal maximum. Well, no, it's not in Europe, not in Greenland, not in North America. It's, it's not. I mean, we, you know, they were growing grapes in Northern England and making wine. And so mm -hmm. we don't, we're not, we're, clearly it's not at, at those temperatures today, but maybe the planet in general is warmer. So this is kind of weird, a weird metric to simplify a planet that's very 
diverse, has a lot of variability in temperatures, right? You, anywhere on the planet today is setting a record cold and somewhere else is setting a record high. And yeah. so to, to reduce that into a single metric, it, it's doable. And that metric, you can calculate that. I understand that what an average is, but is it meaningful? Mm -hmm. I, I would argue that it's about as meaningful as the average phone number in the phone book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's say half the earth got 10 degrees warmer and half the earth got 10 degrees colder. The average would stay the same, but that would be catastrophic. Absolutely. I mean, you'd have such, yeah. So, I mean, what the heck does this average mean? <laughs> it's a very way, it's a simple way to dumb down a really complex system into a single metric. Well, two metrics, right? Average temperature and average CO2 content. And so both stupid metrics because there nobody's experiencing the average CO2 content in this room right now, just because I've been in here, I bet the CO2 is 600 PPM in your room too. I would take one, I would take a measurement into my lecture halls. I had a lecture hall with 360 students and one day it was 1100 PPM in that room yeah. um, when we were done. So it's 50,000 PPM I'm exhaling, right? And so yeah. you dumb down really complex systems into really simple metrics that you can show are changing very minutely. And that kind of yeah. makes people realize, oh, okay, look, I can, I can understand climate change because I can see that the global, and they don't even say the global temperature, right? It's global temperature anomaly because yeah. it has to be taken from a baseline. Interestingly, they choose a very cold baseline, which is, which is, which is convenient for them because it makes their numbers bigger. But then you can make these claims that look, we're, you know, we're outside some natural variability. Um, I think it's just a simple way to to dumb down a really complex science for the public to understand. Yeah. But it's, it's and, and meaningless, the, essentially. Well, the point I make is there's no super being straddling the planet experiencing a global average. I mean, we all live in regions, and surely that's all that's important for the Absolutely. plants, the animals, for people, is what, what's happening where they are. Not Absolutely. some sort of thing. Yeah. Like Absolutely. the whole thing... See, <laughs> and this is one crazy. of the arguments against that I make against, for example, using something like temperature. So the argument is, okay, let's, we're going to reduce climate change by covering a huge amount of the land surface with solar panels and wind farms. Yeah. And we will lower the future warming by a degree, maybe or two. And so you know, if I'm a fox and I, you know, and it's 2100, I probably don't care that it's a degree or two less in temperature, but I probably do care that what used to be, you know, grasslands and forests is now covered in solar panels and wind farms. Yeah. Right. So in terms of my arguments are always, I think ecosystem modification and land use are a much bigger problem than, for example, CO2 emissions. And that becomes a very inconvenient argument for low density energies, for example, solar and wind. And so, you know, you have to kind of look at these things, but it's just, you know, everybody loves to focus on temperature and CO2. And yeah. if you, if you just kind of repeat that mantra, you're an environmentalist. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's really sad, especially sad because of the students being so upset. So we only have, unfortunately, six minutes to go. Jeez, uh, we're going to have to have you back for another show. This is really quite fun. <laughs> so in addition to climate change, what are some other irrational fears that have gripped the public mind? So I would argue that uh, one of the biggest irrational fears that we have right now that kind of piggybacks onto climate is our fear of radiation and our fear mm. of nuclear energy. Um so nuclear energy is a carbon-free energy that we have right now. It is reliable. 
It is clean. We can reuse the waste just like France does and reprocess it. It goes into medical devices. It goes back into different types of reactors. It goes into, you name it. Um, obviously there is some waste. There's always, there's drawbacks. There's, you know, we have to understand that they're living in harmony with nature is a myth. When hmm. a beaver makes a beaver dam, it displaces some, you know, hundreds of gophers and groundhogs and things like that. So, but we can mit- we can minimize our impact on the environment. I think that's a worthy cause and we should strive to do that. And so there's always going to be some impact. So there'll be small amounts of waste. We can deal with that waste. We know we can do that. It's not unreliable. It doesn't depend on if the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. And radiation is not a dramatic killer. So in the Fukushima disaster that happened in Japan, not a single person lost lost their life. Um, Right, from radiation. From radiation, yeah. 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 At Three Mile Island, not a single person lost their life. So in modern reactor designs, so these are reactors that have a negative coefficient of reactivity, meaning that when they start to get hot or bubbles start to form in the water, they they start to shut down. Um, different than Chernobyl, for example, had a positive reaction coefficient. That means when it started to get hot, it started to run hotter and hotter and hotter. And thus it went through this catastrophic meltdown. And obviously people did die from acute radiation poisoning. But in a modern reactor design, we've never lost a single life. Yeah. And, you know, and so we're doing, we're, we're trying to reinvent the wheel by doing this energy transition to carbon-free energy by solar and wind, unreliable sources that will have to be backed up by batteries that require tons of mining and all this. Well, we have nuclear energy sitting right in front of us. France yeah, did yeah. France did it in a two decades. They, they took mm-hmm. their grid from something like 10% uh, nuclear, which is us in the US right now, 10 or 12, and up to 75 or something in about a oh. decade or two. Yeah. Right. Reduce some regulations, get rid of this idea of, of this fear, this irrational fear of radiation and, and build some nuclear power plants. You know, that would be a great way to go carbon free right away. Well, that's right. And you know, it's interesting because people talk about long-term radioactive waste and I say, yeah, it's long-term because it's not very high energy. That's right. The high, high level waste decays very quickly. In fact, Professor Rogers, who was my engineering professor for thermodynamics in Carleton University, he said that you can hold a can-do reactor bundle in your hand, hands safely, a used bundle, after only 400 years. That the millions of years, yeah, that applies to gloves and low-level radiation. Yeah, I mean, their alpha particles are helium. If, if you've ever had a, a balloon for a bird boy's, a, you know, a kid's birthday party full of helium and you've inhaled it, that's the same essential particle that's coming off in radiation and low, low energy radiation. There's alpha particles, betas and gammas and things we have to worry about. But, but those things, like you said, a lot of those short-term radionuclides, those are in the process of decay. Those things last for days or maybe, maybe weeks, sometimes maybe a decade or two at times, maybe a century, but most of that stuff decays relatively quickly. And it's that low energy stuff that lasts for a long time. And we just know how to deal with it. We could, we could take essentially all the nuclear waste in the United States and store it in one large warehouse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I was reading, I was reading, if you got all your electricity as an average Westerner from nuclear power, it would re- produce high level waste in your life of about the size of a golf ball. You know, it's remarkable. So- it's the, yeah. the density. So this is, you know, we don't use fossil fuels by accident. Fossil mm-hmm. fuels are very high density. 
Um, that's why we use them. They have a lot of carbon bonds. Those carbon bonds release a lot of energy when they're when we combust them. But nuclear energy is orders of magnitude more power density per volume. So yeah. you know, it seems like the natural evolution. If we want to have a smaller impact, let's use the things that we need the least of to produce the most power. Yeah, that seems yeah, like the natural logical progress to me. But we're going the other direction. We've gone down to more and more dense energy sources, you know, from wood to coal to natural gas to nuclear. And now we're going and backwards. We're going backwards. <laughs> it's, it's totally crazy. To save the you planet, know? to save the planet, we have to go backwards. It, yeah, I, it's remarkable. <laughs> well, as you pointed out, the more wealthy we are, the more we protect the environment, anyways. Oh, so, absolutely. It's a privilege to think about the temperature for your grandkids. Most yeah. people don't have that privilege when they're thinking about where the water, clean water is going to come from today or the dinner, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. I, we have to end our, pres our our interview with that, unfortunately. So, Matthew, thank you so much for being on. My guest today has been Dr. Matthew Wailiki, a PhD from UCLA, who runs the blog Irrational Fear. And I'll link to that under the podcast. And hopefully we'll have him back at some point in the future because we didn't even get through our, all of our questions. Absolutely. So th Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks so much for being on, Matthew. So this is Tom Harris and my guest, Dr. Matthew Wieliki, signing out from the other side of the story. Mm -hmm.